This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Terrific shots, tantalising tie breaks, dodgy track suits, tears, tantrums and titanic battles. We've had it all this week, so strap in and make yourself comfortable as we go through it all on this week's ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. And a week down at Melbourne Park, one week to come. It already feels like we've played two weeks anyway with the excitement that we've had around this tournament. It's great to be alongside, but we'll just do this at the Slams now. Chris Bowers, hello. Hi, Pete. It is a, a, a tantalising second week we've got coming up, but we've got to review the first. What have been the highlights for you? Well, what's interesting is that we've had six days as we record this, six and a bit, and the first four days, there were some good matches and some uh, nice little storylines, but we had all the big names intact. Get to the third round, and they fell like skittles, especially the uh, top women seeds. But, you know, I think uh, it's been a great uh, tournament. We've gone very late on a number of occasions, two quarter to one finishes. Um, but, you know, we've had good crowds till the very end. And you get the sense that the tournament's buzzing. I have this theory that we remember the slams from the finals, and I still hold by that. But, you know, very seldom do you get to the end of a first week and have had so much buzz around a, a tournament as we have on this week. Absolutely. From a local perspective, this guy has been captivating the audiences all week long. Kyrgios, 9-8, final set tie-break. He serves at backhand return from Achanov. Kyrgios has to play a half volley into our backhand Achanov. And there it is! is. Kyrgios is on his back! He's lying there, arms spread-eagled. He doesn't believe what he's done. Oh my goodness, this is going to go down! Australian Open folklore. We'll be talking about this for years. Kyrgios strolls to the net. Hajanov is there. They shake hands. They pat each other on the shoulder. And Kyrgios stands there as if he has no energy left. <laughs> and he now walks back onto the court and he's bent double. He's patting his heart, but there's very little energy left. He's bent double again. He can barely walk. He's given everything, but he's got something out of it. He's got a blockbuster on Monday against Rafael Nadal. What an atmosphere it was on Melbourne Arena. Chris obviously calling that for AO Radio. What a performance from Kyrgios. He loves playing on that Melbourne Arena. There's been a lot talked about about Nick Kyrgios, particularly from the local media here. We know his reputation has not been great in the past, but this year there seems to be a bit of a difference. And I think, too, Kyrgios himself has really changed the way he's gone about it. There were times in that match against Karen Hachinov where he could have just let go and he did a little bit. Yep. He reined it back in. That's been the big difference. He's got this steely resolve and a focus now and the results are coming. It's very easy to see Kyrgios as a, as a lost soul, uh, but 
I was around the early part of Agassiz's career, and Agassiz at 24 was about the same. People were saying, well, you know, great player, wonderful talent, but will he ever put it together? And then he won Wimbledon, and then he went off the rails a little bit again, and he was helped by Brad Gilbert, who I think came along at the right time. But one of the things we were saying in the early stages of Agassiz's career was that he was a fundamentally good guy. No one has ever doubted that Kyrgios's heart is in the right place. And do you know what's happened this year? It's not just that I think he's realised that he can't just be a player of great matches. He has to be a great match player. He has to do it uh, continu uh, continuously. The other thing that's happened is that a cause has given him an extra purpose, and that causes the Australian bushfires. He's from Canberra, uh, the Australian state capital, which is pretty much right in the middle of the worst of the fire zones. Canberra Airport was closed on several occasions. The Canberra Challenger Tournament, uh, two weeks before the Australian Open, had to be moved from Canberra to Bendigo, upstate Victoria, because the air quality was so poor. And he has been very much leading this. He was the principal tennis man behind the... Uh, the, the rally for relief uh, four days before the Australian Open began. He's sort of got a purpose here, and that, I think, has turned an awful lot of people in Australia who felt that, well, yeah, talent by all means, but he, he, he can be a bit of a jerk at times, into people who are willing to give him the benefit of the doubt, and he's followed that up with three really, really gutsy wins. Switching to the way that he's playing at the moment, though, it, it's that calm temperament yes okay there are occasional flare-ups along the way but they're not as prominent now and I think you know that was a little bit of a coping mechanism playing in front of the big crowd we haven't seen that in the past couple of rounds yes he's been down but in the past he's dropped his bundle here he's been able to pick it back up again quickly but it's the willingness to dig deep and you know we know he loves the stage. I was commentating on that match uh, against Hachanov, and there was no question he was loving the stage. But in the past, he's loved the stage at the cost of his match strategy. And having missed a match point in the third set tiebreak, couldn't really do anything about it. He knuckled down to the fourth set. He then had a match point in the fourth set tiebreak. He had a chance on that one. It wasn't an easy one, but he had a chance. And to then have to regroup once again and knuckle down in the fifth set, in the past, I think he wouldn't have done it. He would have, uh, he would have played some flashy shots and would have gone down uh, in a blaze of entertainment. This time, he really did uh, dig deep, found the right shot at the right time, and although he said he thought he lost the match uh, halfway through the tiebreak, he didn't give up at any stage. And by being there at the end, he gave himself a chance, and he took that chance. And I have to feel really, really pleased for him because I know this was a personal battle for him as well as a great moment for Australian tennis. Certainly, and I think too, he goes up now against uh, the old rival in Rafael Nadal. We think back to Wimbledon last year and uh, that match where Nadal got the job done. He did, uh, uh, the previous round, get a time violation uh, called against him, which is, Kyrgios is one of the last players you would expect to get a time violation. He plays so quickly and then decided to just mimic Rafa because obviously referencing the fact that how much time Nadal gets between points. This is a spicy rivalry. I wonder though, we'll get, this is going to be a theme throughout our podcast today, how much gas he's got left in the tank because he made the observation on AO Radio after the match that you said that, you know, he looked spent. He looked absolutely spent. And we saw it. He lay on the ground. He was slumped in his chair. He could barely give responses to Jim Courier. He was tired. And I, I think that's going to be a problem against Nadal. Yeah, he was tired. But, you know, I think he's uh, he's going to find the right way. You know, he said, I need to go into the ice bath. I need to get some food. When he spoke to the media um, at his press conference about an hour later, he was actually talking a much, much better game. And, uh, you know, I think he will find the right 
energy for the match against Nadal. And what I also liked about the way he was talking about the match against Nadal, there were a couple of journalists that were looking to try and um, spice up the match by going back to past comments that uh, Nadal has made about Kyrgios and Kyrgios has made about Nadal and Kyrgios was saying look we don't hang out together we're two very different guys but we have tremendous respect for each other yep. he said he's one of the greatest players you could argue he's the greatest player ever and he has said that I'm good for the game and I like that he's basically saying yeah we're different characters and we don't have dinner together but that doesn't mean we don't have immense respect for each other and last time we played at Wimbledon he beat me and I said at the end too good and in a way I love that as an attitude and both these guys are quality human beings a word on Karen Hachinov because we need to, to pay tribute to him he had back-to-back -back four, hour, four hour matches the Kyrgios said it's it's only the beginning for him he played against Mikhail Ima and on the court three and that went to the match tiebreak four hours he's matched with Kyrgios match tiebreak in the fifth set four hours I mean he's had a lot of work so early in the season Karen Hutchinov and I tend to agree with Kyrgios but only in the sense that it is the beginning it's the beginning of a big 2020 for him I think it was he needed something to turn around his fortunes you know to think how he finished um, 2018 you know he won the um, Rolex Paris Masters, last of the ATP Masters 1000 events of the year. He looked so good. He was a reserve at the NITO ATP Finals in London. And then he seemed to go, just lose his match tightness last year. And he slipped down to about 30 in the rankings. He had a good last couple of uh, months of the year, ended up finishing in the top 20. But, you know, he belongs in or around the top 10 but he needed to actually get the winning habit back it's all very well having these great st strokes and i watched uh, hachanov in practice this week boy does he pummel that forehand oh, yes. it is just an amazing weapon but it's no good to be able to hit big shots you need to uh, co combine them to get them at the right time in the right order in the right matches and what i think hachanov will do is he, need, he needed that match, and I think the Ema match will prove to be in it. He's actually rediscovered some of his confidence now, and I think when he gets back on the tour, as long as he keeps up his work ethic, which I think he will, I think uh, we will see him back to the kind of level that he was showing in the second half of 2018. All right, well, we move from one big match from uh, week one of the Australian Open to another the previous night, which captivated Rod Laver Arena. Match point, Roger Federer. Milman will serve, down the tee, blocked back by Federer. Milman off forehand, slice backhand short by Federer. Milman goes back that way, Federer stretching. It's a ball that sits half court. Milman up the line, Federer cross court. Winner! There are no words that can accurately sum up what we'll see tonight. But Roger Federer has survived in an epic challenge. He has found a way through. He solved the John Millman puzzle. And he wins it in the fifth set tiebreak. What a match. What a performance. What a night. Yeah, what a performance from John Millman. He couldn't get there, but he did push Roger Federer all the way. Federer getting through to the fourth round in that match tiebreak in the fifth set. It was close. It was 10-8. Milman did have chances in that final set. He managed to go a break. He was broken back again. We went to the tie break. He was up in the tie break. 
It is interesting, the psychology of all of this, because Federer was down in many different aspects of that. Millman had beaten Federer before. There was a lot in the mix, but in the end, the results was Federer standing tall again here at Rod Laver Arena. Yes, I have a horrible feeling that John Millman's career will be defined a little bit by this match. I hope it isn't, because he's a great guy, and he put in such an attitude in that match. You know, He works hard, he was bustling all the way through, and I love the way he played it. He didn't go for the pe- Federer backhand. He peppered the forehand, which is normally the big weapon, and he, he went toe-to-toe with that forehand, and frequently 20-plus stroke rallies, and he got an awful lot of errors out of it. And I love the way he went about that match. And at various stages, he could have thought, OK, give this a good shot. Uh, uh, the uh, the tide is going out now and he hung in with it and the shame was that he made a couple of bad choices from 8-4 up in the uh, uh, final set tie break but you have to win that last point and Federer who I think in his mind was resigned to losing that match and that in itself takes the pressure off a little bit the way he played those last six, point, six points wasn't a lot that he did that was special, but he made Millman win it. And that's where we just saw the slight bit of difference and Federer reeling off the last six points to go from 4-8 to 10-8. Yeah, it's just a, it continues to just defy belief, Federer. And you mentioned it during our call on AO Radio. You, you're talking about Federer enjoying the challenge, the challenge of trying to work his way through a match. And when he is down, how does he find a way? The term you used was uh, solving a puzzle, basically. And and how he was able to do that against Milman. And you come up, you know, Milman hung with him all the way through until just the very end of that uh, last set tie break. And he just broke the spirit mentally. He was so strong, Federer, right throughout that match. And you just had the feeling that, you know, John, you're going to have to go out and win this because I'm not going to give it to you. And one of the things that I think is crucial about Federer is that he never fears losing. He doesn't want to lose, but he doesn't fear losing. For him, it is a battle to work out how to solve the problem. And that's why I think that he ends up playing the right shot at the right time so often. Yeah, that's true. And he moves on. Marton Fucevic, he hasn't played that match at the time that we're recording this. And again, the big question, as we say about Nick Kyrgios, how much has he got in the tank? Because that was a long, drawn-out match over a long period of time. He hasn't had any lead-up tournaments uh, coming into the Australian Open. What effect do you think that's going to have? Because Fucevic, I watched his first match against Denis Shapovalov. He's one of those players that... If you have any sort of slip-up or you're not playing at your best, he will get you. He's that sort of player. And he goes into the Federer match having not dropped his last seven sets. He dropped one in the first round against Denis Shapovalov, but he's in very, very good form. I think the thing about Federer and on and, and all talented players who are maybe a little bit tired when they go into a match is that they've got options. And I think uh, this is perhaps a lesson for anybody. If you don't think you've got more than you know, two, two and a half hours of running in you, fine, you're going to cut the points short. You see, I wonder whether Kiros is going to serve an awful lot of second serve aces and a few double faults as well against Nadal. And in a way, Federer has such a rich arsenal um, in his uh, in his bag of clubs, if we can take a golfing analogy. He can, uh, I think he will use clubs in his match against Fucevic that we don't normally see. I think Kiros will do the same against Nadal. And I think that is where good players can sometimes get over the feeling of tiredness. They can help their own recovery by just buying themselves some time with slicing and dicing, uh, drop shot off a return of serve, uh, serving and volleying where you're not expecting and and things like that. One of the interesting points that has come out of this week, not just in in the two matches that we've covered so far, we will be getting to a hell of a lot of other players too, so uh, hang out. 
or fast forward, it's entirely up to you, uh, is the match tiebreak. So the first to 10 points, and obviously all the slams are different. French doesn't have it, they keep going. We go to 12 all uh, for Wimbledon. We go to six all, but the conventional tiebreak at the US Open. Does 10 points sit well? I, first point I'll make is I am now very much, and I was before, pro final set tiebreak. I feel that, yes, okay, changes the dynamic a little bit, but having a final set tiebreak will have all the drama of, say, a 16-14, where potentially you have in that 16-14, a lot of games that just quickly go by. We're just marking time as we go through them. I feel we get to the point quicker, and 10 points is probably long enough in a tiebreak to yeah, get a sense of, okay, I can be down a little bit, but I've got time to get it back as opposed to the first to seven. So what you're saying is that you think that the uh, Australian Open system, which um, all four slams are different at the moment in terms of how they deal with final sets in singles, you think the Australian system is the best? Yes, and I think the other thing too is what we see towards the end of the final sets, as we're just putting... Uh, gee, you've had, you've had a big week, Chris. They're just putting all your bottles no, into it's the... All, uh, it's, it's, my, it's my environmental conscience. It's the recycling, <laughs> you see. Yeah, I know, but you didn't have to drink all of them, though. Uh, well, but didn't the, I? The, the <laughs> but the main point, I guess, is... You know, the dynamic changes because there's a finish line there for the players. So I think they're going harder, three all, four all, five all, to know to, they've, got a, they've got the tiebreak and they've got that sense of finality. I could be out on court for, say, maximum 25, 30 minutes and we go up a gear. I think that, in my opinion, the quality of tennis at the back end of a match, more often than not, will be much better knowing that we're finishing at 7-6 in the fifth. Well, I was in favour of final set tiebreaks well before... Um, the change of the rules just over a year ago that uh, brought them into uh, three of the four majors. The French still don't do it. Um, and in fact, during the commentary on AO Radio, which is being rebroadcast on ATP Tennis Radio, I was saying that in a way it was the Isner-Anderson semi-final at Wimbledon in 2018 that made it politically feasible for the Australian Open and Wimbledon to adopt the tiebreak in the final set. I think it's still a work in progress because I think eventually um, the uh, four majors may well settle on one format. And actually the one I like is the one here in Australia. I did do a couple of matches at Wimbledon last year. Um, I know why Wimbledon didn't want to go straight to six all. And uh, yes, you do get that long build-up. But I think once you have the long build-up, I feel a first to seven is too quick. Um, I felt that in the final last year between Federer and Djokovic. And I felt it in the, the first match in the main draws uh, where it happened in a fifth set, which was the uh, uh, a men's doubles, Salisbury Ram against Continent Piers. You know, you build up to this 12 all and then suddenly it's all over in a few minutes. I actually think the first to 10 makes a lot of difference. And for me, this is the model that I hope everybody adopts, including Wimbledon, including the French. And I hope the US Open, it may seem like a step backwards to them, given that they've been uh, uh, final set tiebreaks since 1970, when the tiebreak was first introduced. And uh, since they've been, it's been a standard to play the first to seven with a lead of two, they have had that. I actually hope that all four majors agree on the current system as we have it in Australia. Yeah. I just think as a, as a product, we've got to balance that yes. between the traditions of the game. I mean, we're talking about this now and people are listening to this around the world because tennis is an international spectacle and very few of the tennis fans can actually get to see tennis tournaments other than on television or hearing them on the radio. And therefore, it's important that the product that we have is marketable. You have to think also where the tennis scoring system evolved from. It evolved in the days when most of tennis was played on grass, mm. when uh, a player would uh, 
pick up a ball, would serve, would run in, play the volley, and maybe a rally would be five or six strokes, walk back to the base time, pick it up again, and start. A bit like you say, playing a table tennis match, where the gap between points is very, very small. Because of the physicality of tennis, the gap between points has grown. Therefore, the length of matches from start to finish has grown. And in a way, for me, the tiebreak in the final set was the only way we could save best of five sets tennis. Yeah. I think the ATP has got it right by saying tour events are all best of three. You can still have three-hour epics, you know, and uh, didn't Djokovic and Nadal play one in Madrid a few years back that was four hours, you know, best of three. You know, you can have these long matches. And yes, we're saying a finite length of a tennis match, but we still don't know how long a match is going to last. It's still a, a fair, fairly big range. And for me, I think you've got to get to a climax. And just as uh, football or soccer discovered that a penalty shootout was better than going on and on, more and more replays. Uh, so I think tennis has to have its equivalent of the penalty shootout, and that includes in the biggest events. One more point before we move on, because we've got a lot of other players to be talking about in this podcast, and that is the best of five set dynamic. We've lost a little bit with the Davis Cup now moving to best of three sets. I'm thinking directly of players like Shapovalov, of Tsitsipas, who have both fallen in the first week. Shapovalov fell in the opening round. We talk about the next-gen players coming through. They're not necessarily featuring in the second week of the Australian Open here. My feeling on this is now we only have four times a year where there is best of five set tennis. I think for the generations to come, it's gonna take them a lot longer to adapt to the best of five set dynamic because the opportunities aren't there. The ATP Tour, um, the old Masters Series events, the finals used to be best of five sets. So there was an opportunity there. All Davis Cup matches were best of five sets. So you go back, represent your country and get used to it. It is a skill in itself as we're seeing from the very best on the men's tour to be able to last and understand the psychology, those younger players won't have as much exposure. So I think it's going to take them longer. So don't be too frustrated or put lines through players if they don't have that success at the majors straight away. Yes, and I think an example of that is Sasha Sverev, who uh, I think people have been rather writing off as unable to make the transition. And yet, again, speaking from the perspective of Sunday afternoon at the Australian Open, uh, you know, he's won his first three matches and he's won them fairly uh, impressively. And it could well be that uh, at the uh, a grand old age of 23, he's starting to work out how to play best of five. And you're right, Peter, it is a, uh, a skill that may be learned. And who knows, maybe in the long run, best of five will uh, prove a luxury that tennis can't afford. Let's talk about Sasha Zverev because he was maligned coming into this. The concerns were there and... Uh, you know, whether he would still be the ghost of 2019 and that sort of season, proving anything but. He is efficiently getting through his matches, not really wobbling at all, not really, you know, dropping two sets along the way. I mean, we're not talking about him at the moment, but maybe we should be including him in the conversation. But I think this is, you know, he's, he's indicative of how a lot of modern players develop. He comes to the tour with this big forehand, this big backhand, this big serve. He's, he's got big body as well. You know, he's very tall. And that takes him into the top 10 and, in his case, into the top five. And he's won, you know, some Masters 1,000 titles. But to get to the very top, especially in an era with three just outstanding one-off players in the form of Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, 
he has to work on the subtleties and we're seeing that with a lot of players you know we saw David Goffin got to the uh, top 10 a couple of years ago then he's been unlucky with his injuries but in, in some ways what Goffin needed to do was to work on extra dimensions to his game to make inroads into the top 10 and in a way Zverev is doing that now he's having to work on extra things that he didn't need to get into the top 10 but he does need now and that's why it's fascinating to watch the work in progress and players need to sometimes go back a few places lose a few matches before they really develop the skills Federer always says I learn more from a match that I lose than a match that I win yeah but the key thing for me is that he hasn't dropped a set yet now when we look at Zverev the, the body of work he hasn't had this comfortable a first week at all at the slant at all he's always had a struggle yeah. he's always dropped a set or two along the way he's always had the wobble and had to find a way through and then eventually lost it's proving your theory about the best of five set format takes a while to learn yes and you know, if he can keep that going, the Rublev match is going to be the interesting one for me. He has said that if he wins the tournament, he's going to donate all his prize money to the bushfire appeal too, which is absolutely sensational. That's great. And shows a, a statesmanlike understanding of the world very early in his career. They all talk about loving Australia and, well, I live here, so I'm biased, but, you know, everyone in the world's right. I don't live here and I love this place. Oh, you can stay. On iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and ATPTour.com, this is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Peter Mercado and Chris Bowers with you. And remember, ATP Tennis Radio, we are rebroadcasting Australian Open Radio throughout the two weeks. We're having a great time after week number one, and uh, we're looking forward to a big week two. But you can hear it live on ATP Tennis Radio. I just want to quickly cover off on Nadal and Djokovic. We've talked at length about Nadal and his match with Kyrgios. Djokovic getting through comfortably as well. He had a really good ATP Cup, and clearly that is serving him well. But these guys both know how to play first weeks, and they've gotten through with a minimum of fuss. Yeah, I mean, I have to say at the start of the tournament, it's always very exciting. You've got 128 names. You wonder who might uh, get through to the final. But my hunch right from day one was we're going to have another Djokovic-Nadal final. Maybe wrong on that. You know, they slip up along the way. I think Djokovic has done things slightly differently. In the past few years, he's tended to come to Australia, not play an official tournament. He's played a warm-up at the uh, Kuyong Club the week before. This year, he played the ATP Cup. But he also admitted, having played uh, his, what, five matches there, that he then had to go easy on his practice regime in the week between ATP Cup and Australian Open. So he's having to adjust. Yeah, absolutely. But it's an interesting dynamic with that too. But I guess as we start to move through the, the weeks and months after the ATP Cup, we'll get a better sense of how things are sitting there. And of course, Nadal at the time recording due to play his match with Nick Kyrgios. Let's talk about some of the other names because we're not really talking about the fourth seed, Daniel Medvedev. But... From his perspective, he's not doing a hell of a lot wrong either as he moves his way through the draw. No, I was thinking you were talking about the big three because, of course, they've won all the majors between them. But uh, I think that Medvedev has played very solidly. There's one thing that Medvedev has to prove to me, and a couple of players have slightly found this out in his first three matches so far. Medvedev has not been great at generating pace when he has no pace to play off. And that may be the Achilles heel or the, the underdeveloped part of his game that may well be what finds him out. But Well, hey, we found out that against uh, Alexei Popperin because Popperin, towards the end of the match, he was clearly injured and yes. hampered. But so he just he, sliced. He changed his tactic up, so maybe that's a, a well, sign. And that will go through the 
locker room and the player lounges, they'll get the sense, you know, players will talk and say, have you seen, you know, Popper in just sliced? And they weren't sort of knifed slices, they were floated slices. And Medvedev was having difficulty generating pace. And it happened earlier in the tournament as well. And, you know, he's not been seriously threatened, but I think uh, he is still a work in progress. And there's a lot for him because he had a really good run last year, but there'd be plenty of players who've done well off the back of momentum. What happens when the momentum stops? And that's where, in a way, Medvedev is having to start regenerating the momentum he began generating in Washington last year when he started that amazing run of tournaments at the start of this year. And that's still happening. Let's talk about Andrei Rublev, because we should be talking about Andrei Rublev. Undefeated so far in 2020. He uh, dropped a set to the Aussie wildcard, uh, Christopher O'Connell. Uh, in the opening round, but then from there he's got his job done quite efficiently. Defeated Yuichi Sugita, he then had a four-set win over David Goffin. He's proving to be unstoppable. He plays against Sasha Zverev in uh, their fourth round match. Uh, can anyone stop him? Confidence is such a beautiful thing. Confidence is a beautiful thing. I mean, yes, they can stop him because for me, Rublev still has to work on the subtleties of his game. He's a great ball striker. He moves well and he's learning to uh, construct his points more carefully. I think also, I've said this for years about players hunting in pairs and the Russians are hunting in threes. You've got Medvedev, you've got Hachanov and you've got Rublev. And now that all three of them are playing well at the same time, this is re really going to spur each other on. It was lovely to hear Medvedev talking in his on-court interview after his win against Popperin that uh, you know he remembers going back to the age of about 10 when um, uh, telling stories about um, Rublev's mother and how they had to call her because Rublev was a little bit wild and throwing rackets or whatever. Yeah. The fact is they've got this shared history, but none of them wants to be second or certainly not third. And that th that competition will bring out the best in all of them. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think Medvedev and Rublev could go a long way. And if they don't this week, then I think they're well placed to have a really good season. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see both of them at the NITO ATP finals in November. Uh, Fabio Fanini. Now, Fabio has battled and battled and battled and battled his way through matches and we think Fabio's going away and then he comes back and he's had some really long matches but he's building some nice momentum. Are we seeing the maturity of Fabio Fanini and something that could take him right to the top of majors? Goodness, I hope not. It'd be so much less interesting if he was mature. <laughs> I mean, the nature of the guy is that he's always interesting. I say that a bit about Kyrgios as well. You know, you want people to uh, develop the steel and the ability to win matches without being highly entertaining so that they are there. But you don't want to crush the spirit. You don't want to crush the character of the people who really can help make tennis uh, an even better spectacle than it is already. And, you know, Fanini is 32. I just think... He had such a great breakthrough last year. He had a terrible year leading up to Monte Carlo. Then he goes and wins Monte Carlo. And I think he's been slightly liberated since. I think he feels that he has done what he always should have done. And I think he's now playing with an enjoyment and a confidence. And don't forget, he had two five-setters in his first two matches. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure that he would have had the application to have got through those matches in the, uh, even a couple of years ago. Well, we move from Fanini to a couple of other players I want to touch on. Dominic Team and Milos Raonic. I was going to start with Raonic first because I've seen a couple of his matches. Thank goodness for a start he's injury free because uh, an injury free Milos Raonic is going to be really, really hard to stop. He is feeling confident enough to just throw down 200 kilometer an hour second serves along the way. He's moved his way quietly through the draw 
No one is speaking about him until us now. He's advanced through to the quarterfinals here. He's got the big match experience. Can he be a force to be reckoned with in the second week? I'm feeling yes, because he hasn't had a lot or too many hours out there on the court. Well, think of where we were talking this time last week. We were talking about Tsitsipas as being the member of the next generation who is furthest on and the, the person who we could perhaps see winning uh, a major this year. And Tsitsipas was taken apart by Raonic. I mean, that was an unbelievable display from the Canadian. I'm so pleased for him because although he... You know, he, he, he makes a slightly geeky impression on court. He's a lovely guy. Yes. And, you know, you can have some really interesting conversations with him. If you're into art, have a conversation with him about art. He's, he's fantastic to talk about in that respect. And I was uh, with him here in 2015 when he got to the semifinals and lost to Andy Murray. He was two sets to one up and his adductor muscle went. And he was so frustrated. It was like saying, every time I work, I put the effort in, I get up there, something in my body gives way. Yeah. And, you know, he got to Wimbledon final the following year. And that then, um, you know, he was fit, but he, he didn't play as well as he might have done. And here he is. We don't know. It's too early to say yet. And he's got to test his body because he's, he's only played, what, five matches this year so far. But... Um, you know, I just think it's great to see him back and, uh, yeah, put him on the really quick surfaces if he stays fit and he could be he could be a factor. And a quick word on Dominic Team. I mean, trying to shake off the I can't blow anything other than clay tag. I think that's a bit unfair. I think from it's my unfair. Perspective, completely unfair because we saw what he did at the Nito ATP finals. He does have that ability. Again, another one who's sort of trying to just ply under the radar again not one of the big three so we're not really talking about him all that much at this stage he he's gotten through yes he's had to play some long matches Alex Bolt the Australian pushed him Taylor Fritz pushed him as well he's got Gal Monfils next up speaking of players that we haven't said much about we'll talk about him later but team he's got that big match experience and it's only building yeah and I think the match that impressed me was he played the Australian left-hander Alex Bolt and he was two sets to one down and if I say that this time last year he'd have lost that match, you can't say for certain, of course, but I just got the impression that he has a belief, he has a, a, a confidence on hard courts, to use the Federer phrase, an ability to solve the puzzle on a hard court that he didn't have a year ago. Yes, I agree with that. Um, but also, I mean, we've got to talk about Marin Cilic. He did lose, he fell to Milos Raonic, but... You know, he's, he's getting back up to the top. He could be, what I've seen, the glimpses, I saw him beat uh, Roberto Bautista Gutz. Bautista Gutz played a sensational match. Cilic was just better. And that was the top 10 Marin Cilic that we it saw was. out there. Yeah, it's great to see uh, Cilic. He had, a, he had a run of 12 games in that, which he, uh, you know, without conceding a game, 12 games on the run. And it's lovely to see him playing like that because when you watch him play like that, you realise why he uh, won one major, got to three major finals. He is a a great player. I thought we actually he was fading out last year, you know, and then he announced that uh, he and his wife were expecting and uh, thought, okay, well, priorities have changed and uh, maybe this will be a bit of a farewell tour. Not on the basis of what we've seen this week. I think he looks back to close to his best, if not his very best. Some other players, Stan Wawrinka's another one. Uh, fortunately, John Isner, they, they played on court three for a set and a bit. And unfortunately, John Isner had to retire with a foot injury. Another setback for John and 
he was so, so shattered. But Stan moves on and talk about steady rises up the rankings after injury. Stan is the poster child for that because, yes, he's had to be methodical. Yes, it has taken a little bit of time. But now we're seeing Stan getting back up to the peak form that we saw him winning titles and contending for titles as well. Yes, I think the thing about Stan is that it's taken him longer and... I was a little worried at one stage because I thought, at, well, at 34, 35, does he really have time to get back? But the nature of the way he plays, uh, Severin Luti, the uh, Swiss Davis Cup captain, once said to me, oh, Stan takes four hours to get going. And in a way, to get to a position where you play your best tennis after three, three and a half, four hours, that takes an awful lot of matches. So he does need a lot of matches under his belt. But we're talking about a quality player here. Look at the players who've won majors out there. Obviously, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, and they've got uh, over 50 between them. But you've then got Vavrinka and virtually no one else. That's right. Well, he is the last player on the men's side to have won a major outside of those big three. Yeah, and uh, the only other player who I think was playing here was Chilich, who's now lost. Del Potro's injured, Murray's injured. So yes, uh, four players going into the second week of the Australian Open have passed major titles. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. I could sit out here all day. It's a beautiful sunny afternoon, a Sunday in Melbourne. We're looking out from Tennis HQ across to Rod Laver Arena. We can see Margaret Court Arena. We've got Court 3 and then a sea of humanity milling around. It is a beautiful scene, but we can keep staring out here, but we might have to wind up the podcast. I feel, Chris, that we've only just scratched the surface, really, of the Australian Open with so many other things that we could talk about. I think we might have to be on the next edition, too. Well, I'm certainly agreeable to that, but uh, I think the thing about the Australian Open is that the character is part of it. An awful lot of people talk about this as the happy slam. I think it's as much as anything the fact that most people who come here come from countries where it's quite cold at this time of year, and it is. It's beautiful summer weather. Okay, we've had the, the long drought, the bushfires, and then earlier in the week we had a lot of rain. But as I look out to Court 3, on the outside of Court 3, a couple of years ago, uh, the Australian Open commissioned a graffiti artist, a street artist, to put some graffiti, some art on the side of the, of the court. And it's funny, an awful lot of those matches have had the feeling of being street fights yes. on court three. And I just think it's amazing what you can do to the character of a tournament, which helps shape the, the whole essence of the tennis that we end up commenting on. Don't forget that ATB Tennis Radio is rebroadcasting AO Radio. So you will hear Chris and myself and the whole team broadcasting here from Melbourne Park Alive, so make sure you tune in. Thanks to you, Chris. Let's do it again in about seven days' time. Sounds good to me. That's it for this week. Join us next weekend when we round up events from the first Grand Slam of the year. And remember, of course, to tune in 24-7 to the ATB Tennis Radio channel via the Listen button on the ATB Tour website. And remember, you can catch live ball-by-ball -ball commentary of Australian Open Radio, courtesy of AO Radio. Until then, enjoy the tennis. If you like this podcast, please search the iTunes store for ATP Tennis Radio to leave a review. review.